Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 20. And before I uh, introduce my first guest on the program, um, I just want to, as usual, make my appeal for Counterpunch. Um, Counterpunch is really an important project here. I mean, if you're listening to us, if you've been following this podcast from the beginning, you know I, I make this appeal before every episode, but it's also not just because I want to help drive some subscriptions, I want to help increase traffic to the website, but because I think that independent media is really important. And the subject we're going to be talking about today is a perfect example of that. The corporate media, the mainstream media almost completely ignores some of the most important issues uh, in our society, economic issues, political issues, cultural, social issues. A lot of that gets pushed to the back if it doesn't sell advertising space, if it doesn't um, you know, bring in the revenue, and if it doesn't uh, fall in line with the corporate agenda, with the corporate line. And then you have something like Counterpunch, which is not a part of that. It's not a part of that system, and it depends on you. It depends on your support to continue. So if you want to have that critical perspective that is truly independent from the establishment, then you should consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. Uh, It helps keep Counterpunch going. It's a great uh, resource to get. It's always nice to get it in your mailbox, look at the artwork, flip through actual physical pages. And my guest might have a little bias towards physical pages and the printing of paper. I think that's important. I think that's great. And it's something that needs to survive in this digital age. Um, Also, if you would like to help us uh, spread Counterpunch Radio, consider going on iTunes and giving us a positive review. Not just a a, a nice five-star rating, that's great, appreciated, but also a short written review. You know, people look at those, people read through them, and it boosts us up the charts and the recommendations and all of that. It, it, um, you know, we're providing Counterpunch Radio for free, so we're hoping to spread this to as many people as possible, as many listeners as possible, especially since more and more people are using podcasts as a resource for getting their news and analysis and not having to pay the exorbitant and subscription rates of the New York Times and, you know, the Wall Street Journal and all of the rest of them. So think about it. Uh, I would I would urge you to. Anyway, all of that out of the way, I want to introduce my guest this week, Dave McRae, onto the program. Dave is a playwright, an author. His most recent book, Night Shift, 270 Factory Stories. He is a former uh, president of his union. We'll probably talk a little bit about that. He is a regular columnist with Huffington Post and, of course, with our favorite project, Counterpunch. So all of that said, Dave, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for the invitation, Eric. Uh, well, I want to begin our conversation with um, a general overview. I mean, you focus a lot on labor issues, and I want to get into some of your recent writings and some of your own experiences, but let's just give a little bit of background on you, on your experience within the labor movement over many years, uh, your experiences, what you saw, and how the movement has changed from then to now. I first got involved with a union in the 70s, and that was probably the last decade uh, of union's glory years. The UAW, which um, has always been regarded as the gold standard of American labor, uh, the UAW, whatever they got, all the other unions wanted. They were very successful. I think they were founded in 1935. But in 1979, 78, 79, they had 1.5 million members, UAW, and if I'm not mistaken, it's about 390,000 now. It's been completely decimated. But in the 70s, management still not only respected unions, but um, I would say feared them, and I mean that in a good way, meaning mm-hmm. that, hey, they had to pay attention to what unions said. But all the changes that occurred in manufacturing in this country, uh, first and foremost with the Japanese cars, uh, which more or less started to wipe out of the UAW, um, you saw the membership roles begin to shrink. I believe that in the 50s, uh, the high point was reached. About 35% of the workforce was all union. And today, it is a shade over 11%, with, um, with the public sector being, being in the 30s and the private sector a shade over 6%. So it's been a, a big shocker. Uh, one of the changes I've noticed was that there was a time when people were proud to be a union member. Mm-hmm. You told people you were a union member. People thought, okay, hey, that's good. Uh, wow, you know what union you told them. Um, I've noticed a, a really big change in the perception 
that unions are now thought of when you mention unions, and I've done it a hundred times in groups and social situations. Um, they think of you as a thug or a thief, or as an anachronism. It, it is shocking the, the the change that has occurred over the last say thirty years. I think that um, one thing that I wanted to w- mention, at least from the outset, is that when we're talking about unions and what's happened to unions, it's not simply the decline of unions. It's the decline of labor unions in colla- in coordination or simultaneous with the rise of what we call neoliberalism, the Washington consensus, this economic model with which we're living. And the decimation of public sector unions is really a fundamental characteristic of neoliberalism, the Chicago School, uh, you know, Milton Friedman and all of this. So let's talk a little bit about that uh, because this actually connects back to last week's episode with Michael Hudson and talking about the rise of neoliberalism and this economic uh, Washington consensus. There's been, of course, I think of the school teachers. Um, I'm in Southern California and I look at the LAUSD, the attack on schools in general. Um, they try to pretend that it's lousy teachers, but in truth, they know that uh, unions supply money to the Democrats. They know that, uh, that the school teachers' union is very powerful and so on. They're trying to break it. Yes. Um, I, I really don't know what the exact point of view would be of people in Washington, D.C., in the intellectuals of D.C. I know that there's been a big change in academe toward unions. They used to, uh, going back to the 30s, You'd find a college professor who are very big on labor unions. Now I think um, they have nothing but contempt for you know, the Teamsters, uh, the Longshoremen. I just, I honestly think that over the years there's been a real shift in the philosophy of it. Granted, there's also been, uh, I think, a real smart drive finding a way to get right to work states. Mm-hmm. Now half of the states in the union are right to work. Um, shocking that Wisconsin and Michigan are, which means you can get all the unit benefits, but you don't have to pay any dues. Yep. Uh, I never would have dreamed that Michigan, I don't think anybody would have, that Michigan would have gone that way. Um, but they sold that to people on the basis of personal freedom and liberty. I'm saying if unions are so good, then why should you be forced to join? And I've heard that argument from 100 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, that is such a specious argument. It's almost like a team. You want to be in a football team? Why do I have to wear your uniform? I, I, I like football. I like the school colors. But I want to wear my own uniform. The idea of these people as free riders has, has been, you can imagine, how unions see that. Yeah, and I think it goes hand in hand with the lack of political education, and it goes hand in hand with the separation of the workforce from the community. I think that that's very important, and uh, I, I'll spe- I'll um, expose my own bias here a little bit. I'm a former member of the United Federation of Teachers. I was a teacher in New York City, public school teacher, and I saw over the course of just a few years the way in which teachers are under attack via privatization policies, the charters schools and and the attempts to essentially to break the union for a number of reasons. One of those, and you didn't mention this, but you, I'm sure, would agree. Well, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think you would agree. Uh, Teachers tend to be a bit more on the radical side of the labor union movement. They're closely and deeply engaged with their communities. Teachers are also able to reach out to their communities in a way that factory workers or others might not be able to simply by virtue of the kind of job that they do. So in many ways, I think teachers are really at the top of the hit list uh, in terms of the destruction of unions and the collaboration of union leadership with the Democratic Party. You know, a funny thing about teachers, I have a son-in-law who's been teaching in LSUSD for 19 years now. Um, My father was a school teacher, uh, sister, wife. Uh, You know, one thing about teachers, and I, I think you're right in a way, but I found that uh, teachers and nurses and airline pilots, uh, they, they have a view of themselves as being, and nothing wrong with this, but as being one cut above the blue-collar crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, school teachers are educated. Every one of them has a college degree. And uh, as my, my father said, and still has, he was amazed at how many teachers weren't pro-union, even though they were union members. Mm. They, they thought that they had the apparatus to, to, to think their way out of it. 
Um, you want to see solidarity, you look at the longshoremen on the West Coast. Yes, that's um, a good point. Those, those guys know that their strength lies in being union members, and without it, um, I've had people say that the police are bad because they're union members. And I thought the police are bad because they're police, they're cops. Uh, they are the weakest union members in a sense that they support nothing with the labor movement. If they mm-hmm. saw a group of UAW guys in the street marching, then they would want to hit them with sticks, right? That's cops. I don't think they're union brothers. Um, but school teachers, I, I found it, it's been kind of disappointing in a way. Um, they got some very smart people. And I just don't know, you know, if they if they see the writing on the wall or what. You know, it's interesting. It's an interesting point you mentioned, and I would agree to a large extent. At the same time, I think that part of that is a product of the fact that teachers, in many ways, felt that they had a privileged position by virtue not only of their education, although I think that's true, but by virtue of the fact that they felt that their uh, profession was immune to economic declines. That factory workers' jobs could be shipped overseas, but teachers would always be needed, and therefore. Or that they would be able to, you know, make a concession here and there, uh, maybe not have to take a militant position on this or that issue, but that their union would stay strong and that their position in the economy in, uh, and the economic life of the country would uh, never be jeopardized. But of course, that's been a painful realization for the teachers that in fact, quite the opposite, there are various ways in which public education in general and an organized workforce of public school teachers is being undermined, and there's so many different ways that that's being done. That's a good point. That's absolutely true. You know, you talk about the portability of jobs. That's one thing, and I would say to longshoremen, I've told them, I said, please, guys, don't think that you're strong simply because you've got union solidarity. You're, you're strong because they can't ship the ports to yep. Malaysia or Mississippi. You guys have a huge advantage in having jobs that can't be changed. Uh, you're right about factories. Look at all the factories. Um, that's the big shocker. The other thing, I don't know what the percentage of the school teachers as far as membership meetings. I've never met one single school teacher. I have one. One single school teacher who attended regular monthly membership meetings. No, you've met two now, now that we're okay, speaking. Okay, very good, Eric. Um, <laughs> nationally, it's about 5% across the board. I remember reading years ago when Ron Kerry was president of the UPS uh, union in your neck of the woods in New York. And uh, I think they had 5,000 guys there, members. And um, he said it's 5%. And he said that's a pretty much a national average. In my old union, the AWPPW, which was the Western, what is it, AWPPW Association of Western Pulp and Paper Workers, it was 5%. And, and some people took that as to be you know, apathy, as uh, somehow a disregard for unionism. Some people on the inside said, no, it's a good sign, and that if they were angry, if they were upset, concerned, it would be a higher turnout. Mm. But 5% turns out to be just about right. That is terrible. Yeah. Well, I can I can tell you from my own experience in the teachers union here, uh, part of it has to do with the political machine that controls the union, because uh, speaking of the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers, you essentially have a small clique uh, of just a couple of people, uh, the so-called the Unity Caucus, which basically controls the entire union and shuts out all forms of debate to the point where most uh, teachers don't even think that the delegate assembly, let alone the chapter leader positions or the uh, the, the union meetings are really all that relevant, that it's basically just a platform for the president of the union to get up and do his little stand-up comedy routine and tell us uh, what's happening, give us a status report, and that's it. And so um, I, I want to return to this issue because I think that there is an insurgency I can speak to uh, in the teachers' union. There is an insurgency inside of the union that's trying to change that, but I just wonder, and maybe you could give me your input on this, to what extent is that the case with unions nationally where where the leadership is so deeply entrenched that rank and file don't even feel like activism within the union is relevant? That is a great question. Absolutely. I've been on both sides of that. I was a young Turk who looked at the union leadership as a stodgy bunch of guys, not in the pocket of the company, but guys with no imagination, no sense of creativity. And I joined together with a bunch of other guys and said, you know what, we got to step up. And um, I, the Teamsters famously, you know, the thing of the TDU, um, they, they more or less kind of took over uh, a big part of the Teamsters. 
at least they got one one man one vote rule before it was only the delegates mm-hmm. that could vote and they were appointed it was a terrible system but there's been that move the UAW is famous for uh, a huge amount of dissidents um, I forgot the name of their group but but just absolutely threw their hands up in dismay that oh my god we have no leadership but then I became president and um, you know I'm it kind of changed my outlook um, I thought, oh, my gosh, once you're in there, uh, what to do? I was very demoralized by the fact that management pretty much has has everybody under their thumb. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the 5% showing up, I've told people this before, their big fear is not to hear the union president or the executive board screaming. Their big fear would be to see 400 people, workers, on the front lawn in the morning when they drove up. That is what terrifies them is the people itself. Um, and, and that doesn't happen either. Either people think, you know, they're they're thinking, well, I won't get that much anyway, or um, these guys have tried their hardest, and what they've gotten this is, I guess, the best. Or I, I, I'm not sure what the psychology is, but it's hard. People have lives; they have concerns. They got a hundred other things to think about, and the company has only one thing to think about, and that's their profits. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. Um, I want to touch on a article that you published uh, just a few days ago. We're speaking here on uh, September twenty sixth, um, entitled "Why Labor Unions Will Prevail," and it's you know I had to click on it when I saw it. I mean, I read your stuff regularly anyway, but when I saw that title, I had to click on it because it's almost counterintuitive for people who have experiences with the labor movement in the U.S. because it seems so demoralized and so unlikely to prevail. So um, you you talk a little bit about how the decline of unions and their economic power is actually doesn't really reflect the fact that they've lost popularity, that in many ways they are still very popular when you get past the propaganda, when you get past that and you actually explain to people what a union offers them. And you also mentioned a bit about how the establishment works really hard to keep them down. So let's talk a little bit about that. It seems counterintuitive, but explain to us why you think labor unions will prevail. I think the future, oh, it's going to be bad at first because unions came out of crises. And, and, um, and back in the 30s for the New Deal, that was their glory days, 1935, Wagner Act, right? minimum wage, same year, I believe. Um, I, I think the fact that you see the gap between the middle class and the rich and the middle class and the working poor still shrinking or growing, the gap growing. Um, the reason why I think unions are going to rise is because one, there's going to be a need for them. Two, the AFL-CIO has come up with the idea, finally, that guys, you know, baby boomers, guys like me, are really sort of dinosaurs. They're no longer relevant, that the future is going to belong to women and to minorities, and um, they, they have to focus on that and to the young. Um, uh, yes, 6% barely of the private sector is unionized, and a big part of that is because manufacturing jobs that were historically unionized are gone. But polls say that if they're right, even close, 60% of the people, workers across the board, say they would be interested in joining a union. And yet 6% private are in unions. And one reason for that is because they know how to, they being management, know how to stop in its tracks a certification drive. They, they really know how to do that now. Um, you know, the EFCA that everybody hoped that Obama would support when he was elected in 08 to allow a simple card check. Hey, you want to be a union member? Yeah, right down here. If 51% do, you're union members. Um, some still do that. Uh, Michael Eisner, who a lot of people criticized when he was a boss at Disney, he allowed card check. He said, if you guys want to be a union, say so if... Uh, 50% plus one, one, two, then I'm not going to argue with you or have an NLRB election. But most don't do that, and they're very good at that. They can stall. They can stall for a year, Eric. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's too long for people to hold their interest. I think that that's right. I think that also um, there is a growing awareness within these unions. Well, I don't want to speak for all of the unions, but you've seen it in in a few here and there. I know you've heard some rumblings from Trumpka with the AFL-CIO and some of the others talking more about new ways to actually grow their influence. In other words, is there a growing recognition that 
um, the allegiance that organized labor and big labor has had to the Democratic Party is not actually helping their material uh, uh, situation economically or helping them grow. That this constant uh, um, alliance with the Democratic Party is in many ways detrimental to them. Now, I'm not saying that means they dump the Democratic Party immediately, although that would be nice, but I am saying that you're seeing rumblings and moving in another direction. For instance, you hear talk about uh, co-ops more and more in the union movement and what relationship co-ops and local uh, organizations can have to larger national unions. How can the unions become uh, partners with this and invest some of their money rather than dumping millions into these elections, invest some of their money locally into communities to actually help people? I think that that is a new direction that labor is beginning to take, hopefully, and should be taking in order to grow at the grassroots level. I've heard that mentioned. Um, I, I've heard a lot of things, you know, hear about Trump, um, people that loved him when he was a minor, you know, came out of the coal mines, went to night school, um, got his degree, went to law school. Okay. A lot of people, you know, now treat him as if he was always an aristocrat and there was nothing about the labor movement. Um, one thing you hear Trump could say is that historically uh, there's only been one party, the Labor Party, and that's been the Democrats. And, yeah, we've always, lately anyway, we've been very disappointed. Fair enough. Management's dream would be to have us split away from the Democrats and form either a Labor Party or, as you suggest, uh, try to form some kind of co-ops because they would view that as a form of defeat. They, they fear the Democrats as weak as they are. Here's something that I've heard that makes sense. Um, Labor needs to do this kind of thing. The AFL-CIO, once again, has money. They've done terribly trying to organize Walmart, you know, famously 4,500 stores or something, not one of them union. Uh, they've been shut down every time. They've spent millions of dollars trying to organize Walmart. Here's the deal. They take the money and they go to high schools in the South and the Midwest, and they buy new uniforms for the football team. They buy these are schools that need money. Buy new uniforms for the band. Buy new instruments for the band. Make sure they realize that the union, a union, uh, supplied this. They have a scholarship, $100 scholarship. The uh, steel workers have a $100 scholarship. They call it the steel boy or girl of the year. Um, they sponsor a car, a NASCAR. They, they, in other words, make themselves visible in a good way. It's been suggested that they move the offices out of Washington, D.C., and they move them to the south. They put big offices, office buildings in Atlanta and give good jobs and benefits to people. So somebody says, hey, where are you working now? I'm working uh, for the Teamsters. Wow. And I thought that kind of stuff matters. Yeah, I I agree with you. Although um, one thing I would say is that the crisis that we see, especially in America's cities, and especially, of course, in the former industrial cities, you know, Detroit, Patterson, New Jersey, Allentown, Pennsylvania, all of these type of cities that are really uh, collapsed, um, you know, devastated economically, and now, of course, in, in translates to a social and cultural devastation as well. Um, these are places where the union really needs to be uh, investing their money, and I don't simply mean investing their money and trying to you know reignite industrial production i mean in doing things like being able to put people on the ground to protect public housing to protect food programs to protect the uh social safety net programs that have been devastated by both republican and democrat administrations if the union took a leadership position in these cities in the inner cities in the economically blighted industrial cities all of a sudden you would see i in in my opinion, a far greater response than you would simply by, uh, and I'm not denigrating it, but by what I think could be seen as symbolic gesture like, you know, public visibility through a sponsorship of a NASCAR team. You know, for that to happen, of course, you're right, of course. But for that to happen, you would need leadership. And, well, yeah, and <laughs> exactly. I'm not saying you'd need leadership of a certain kind. And I think not just unions, but one thing I've noticed about union hierarchies is that those guys are really trying to cover their butts. They got a good job. Um, they're nowhere near as highly paid as the people talk about. Um, when, when I was president of a local, I turned down the membership suggestion that I make more money each time. I said it's a public service job. But even at the end, I was making like $150 a month. 
it, it was uh, it was more or less an honorarium. Okay, um, when the Pope spoke, everybody loved the Pope. Francis was great. Um, seemed like a real moral leader type guy. I was thinking, what would have happened if he had given 90 seconds to labor unions? If he had talked about the poor and so on and said, but there's one one device, there's one mechanism, everybody that that can rise, that can raise people up, and that is labor unions because they're resistance and they can force management to part with some of that money and uh, it was labor unions that, that, that fix stuff, it's labor unions that pay women the same as men across the board everywhere I thought wouldn't that, they all praised everything he said, I thought that would be wonderful if he had talked that um, uh, that would have been maybe the spark that you're talking about as far as having people get involved in the community yeah, and again, I mean, part of the reason I'm saying that it's not simply because unions are able to marshal, uh, you know, a lot of financial resources, but unions are one of the only mechanisms, maybe the only mechanism that we have left that is able to, over a short amount of time, mobilize a large number of people towards a particular objective. Now, if you can turn out hundreds of thousands of people, if you're talking across labor, across the labor union spectrum, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people into the streets for a particular issue, that is a tremendous power. And I think that is where the establishment, Republican and Democrat, really fears unions, that if they are in the ascendancy, that it is not only an economic force, but a political force that they will have to reckon with. And I'm thinking, you know, the anti-war movement, which has uh, entirely collapsed, which I was a part of and, you know, lead up to the Iraq war in 2003. And Throughout the Bush administration, uh, the Democratic Party and Obama eviscerated the anti-war movement. If there was a tie between labor and anti-war activism, international solidarity work, all of these things that are really essential, all of these movements would essentially hold each other up to, to at least some degree. This is part of the historical function of labor unions when they were in a more socialist direction in the 1930s and even in the post-war period period that was still very much true you know that sounds good and maybe i i become over the years too cynical but um uh remember lane kirkland he was president of the aflcio he, he resigned in about mid 90s 1905 i think one reason he did he was forced to resign is that he was he was strongly criticized by the rank and file for spending too much time he was a vehement anti-communist kirkland and he supported solidarity in poland well, that's his union. And he went out of his way. He visited Poland. And he was very much in favor of having the Soviet bloc countries, former Soviet bloc countries, become free, unionized, and so on. But American labor people thought, hey, the focus should be here at home. Um, we've already seen uh, you know, 12 years of bad stuff happen. And here's Lane Kirkman out there trying to help a bunch of Poles. And he had an international point of view, right? And, and, and he had to pay for that. Um, I was in the Peace Corps in India, and, and I, I kind of stayed in touch with some Indians, and, but I got in touch with the Indian labor movement there. Uh, they're in northern India where I worked, Haryana, where they make all the cars and motorcycles. Those guys, they have a communist party in India. They get about 2% of the vote, okay? So, so they're kind of leftists. Um, but here's the irony. They have been threatened with moving the jobs out of India and moving them either in, in the north either to South India or to South Vietnam or to um, over to Bangladesh. So, so just like they threaten us here by moving jobs out of Ohio to Mississippi, they're told, you're asking for too much, uh, we're going to move you. And I'm thinking, all over the world they're using the very same formula. And, and, and I guess what I'm saying is that your idea, I think of Occupy Wall Street, how effective or ineffective that was. Do you agree that even though it was it was a very showy and 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 virtuous deal that the fact that it lacked leadership hurt it ultimately Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. I was involved with it at the very beginning uh, here in New York at the actual Occupy Wall Street. And I was involved with the demands working group, which was desperately trying to force uh, Occupy to take a, uh, a platform and actually demand uh, concrete economic demands. Um, and uh, this was vehemently resisted. But there was 
part of the resistance had to do with an ideological failure uh, because of the so-called leadership, although they didn't recognize themselves as such, uh, the consensus model, so-called uh, anarchist horizontalism, which I'm not necessarily 100% opposed to, but this the lack of a structural uh, leadership and ideological coherence uh, ultimately, I think, doomed Occupy because rather than making concrete demands, they were interested in abstractions, and uh, this is part of the problem with really all of the social movements that we have in the so-called developed world, that uh, to a large extent they, they, they refuse to make the concrete demands. I think the same criticism has been made here on this show by a couple of former guests talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the inability to make concrete demands and to have a structured leadership with it in a militant direction. And um, so, yes, I would agree that that was part of the problem with Occupy. However, I think, and you know, you might disagree with me here, but I think one of the problems with organized labor in general, and even in countries where it's much stronger in the West, such as in the UK and in Europe, the problem is that uh, many people in the global South, especially, see Western labor unions as simply wanting a bigger slice of the pie rather than actually questioning how the pie is made. And so it's difficult to build international solidarity when workers in the West are demanding higher wages rather than talking about, you know, say, sweatshops in India. So that's one of the difficult contradictions that labor has to be able to reconcile. Listen, I think we need to take a break. So let's just quickly go into break. And on the other side of the break, we got a lot more to talk about. You're listening to my conversation um, uh, here on Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. We'll be right back. Exactly. The, the, the actual handbills that were printed, half were in English, half were in German. German, yep. At one time, the largest union daily was written in the language Finnish. Um, a huge amount of Finlanders in the United States working for labor. You know, maybe the last real union movement uh, that had a charismatic leader 
was the farm workers. The yes, exactly. Okay, Chavez. And, and I, I, I was not part of that, but I was very much aware of it. Um, and I was shocked by some of the techniques they would use, they being the growers, but they would say to the, to the pickers, look, you want to join a union, fine, but understand that, that your, your dues will go to Democrats, always have, always will, and understand, and these are rural guys, very conservative people, okay, people from Mexico. They said, just so long as you realize that your dues are going to go to Democrats, and part of your union dues are going to be used to vacuum out the fetuses of unborn babies, okay? So long as you're okay with that. They put the fear of Jesus in these guys. They really knew how to reach them, and Chavez is one of those leaders that comes around once a generation and was able to keep them together. We don't have those leaders now, I'd say, Eric. Oh, I, I I totally agree with you, and I think that that's part of the um, you know let let's call it the question of solutions that is required. Um, you know, I'll just give one example, and I, I don't mean to keep harping on it. It's just one of it's the one that I'm most familiar with in terms of being active there. Uh, here in New York, in the teachers' union, there is an insurgency within the United Federation of Teachers uh, known as the Movement of Radical Educators or the Movement of Rank and File Educators depending on what the acronym is, but the MORE Caucus, M-O-R-E, and they're trying to challenge the Unity Caucus, which is the established uh, uh, clique that runs the union. They're trying to challenge them, and they're trying to force the union into a more radical direction, into a more confrontational relationship with the establishment in New York City, and a confrontational relationship to some degree with the American Federation of Teachers, which is run by Randy Weingarten, good uh, bosom buddy of uh, Hillary Clinton um, and former head of the UFT. Now, this insurgency, that I, what I'm calling an insurgency in the union, trying to push it in a more radical direction along the lines of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, along the lines of Seattle and what we're seeing there, I think that this is a really important trend that needs to be, I think, broadened out in the labor union uh, movement generally. And if it can go in that direction, we could see what you were talking about in the article, the potential for labor unions to have a new uh, ascendancy. I absolutely agree with that. I've always said, even when I was in office, that what is the company, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, what does the company not want? They don't want to see people on the front lawn, you know, holding placards here, but they don't want to see grievances and they don't want to see cases go to arbitration and they don't want to see strikes. They want meetings. They want discussions. They'll talk forever. Okay, because they know in the end they'll prevail. Fair enough. But I've told people, we used to tell students, file a grievance. They hate grievances. Take a radical point of view. The law supports us on this stuff. You can be really nasty and radical and have the law on your side. But unions have, have retracted their fangs, and, and it's a fact. But I will say, just, just to, to speak for the other side, so to speak, okay, that there are people who think that, that when you fight them, you risk losing everything. Um, where I work in a, a large paper mill, a Fortune 500 paper mill, uh, 700 people, they were terrified that they would shut us down and move it to Alabama. And if you said, we got us, I was on a strike in 83. Um, we were out 57 days. I was a strike leader. Um, Nolan Cross, I'm really proud of those people. But I went back to the plant and, and was astonished that it was about 50-50. 50% said we should have stayed out forever. They wanted it to be a siege, not a strike. And the other 50% said that was the dumbest thing you ever did. I hate this union and I hate you. It was how dare you put us in jeopardy. We're making a pretty decent wage. How dare you? And I thought, I think that goes across the board. Yeah. I, um, I, here's, a, here's a quote from a guy, the vice president of the AWP great guy but he says to me um when i was writing that book he said here's the deal when i go around and people see me and we're talking we're sitting someplace waiting to have tires change whatever he says they ask me what i do for a living and i say uh, i uh i work to help union uh, excuse me i work to help working people um i i go and help them with their paychecks any kind of discrepancy um uh, any sexual harassment or any any example of bullying i step in i help with their medical and their pension just make sure everything's on the up and up he says, everybody says, really? That is really good, man. I didn't even know there was a job like that. He says, yeah, yeah. So that's what you do. He says, yeah, I work for a labor union. Mm -hmm. And people, when they hear that, they recoil in horror. And he says, somehow, 
they look at unions as being selfish, you know, kind of thuggish. But he says, we're not reaching people somehow, whatever the reason. But doesn't that make sense in a way? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, part of that is the propaganda campaign and part of that is the failure on the part of the union leadership to really, I think, uh, to challenge that, you know, sort of the, I don't know, Jimmy Hoffa archetype, the sort of, you know. Right, right, exactly. I think that that is a major problem. But I think that also, look, I mean, and I'm not trying to bash unions because I'm pro-union. I'm about as militant as (laughs) anybody I know about unions. But at the same time this this constant uh um harping on well we have to protect our our self interest here we don't want to jeopardize our position we don't want to do that that is nonsense because that's the opposite of how struggle actually works if you look at the history of the labor movement just in the united states during the i mean the same thing was said during the depression they said that the communist influence the socialists in these parties that they're jeopardizing us they're jeopardizing our position. The sit-down strikes are a bad idea. The slow-down strikes are a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing this, especially uh, when the country is in the depths of such a depression. They said the same thing 75 years ago. They were wrong then, and they're wrong now. I agree. Um, uh, when you look back at the history of the IWW, uh, I think it was from 1905, people say, oh, we, we still got to have that. It was a great union. Too, but we don't have it. It's still around. I think they got a Berkeley coffee shop that sets Wobblies. Um, but they, I think, in their second year of existence, very short time after they were formed, they had a schism over which approach to use. Yes. Uh, it was Haywood and Debs, I think, for the founders. Yeah, Big but, Bill, but, Big Bill, yep. Yeah, but, but I think there was one faction said, listen, we're a nation of laws. The laws have, in many ways, helped us, um, hurt us, but this is how we do it. We win over the legislatures. And that's how we do it, step by brick by brick. The other side said, "No, no, we do it in the streets." Yep. And and that was the that was the schism. And and this is the IWW in only like its second or third year. And I'm thinking that's one thing you don't find among union people. And, and I was involved for about 25 years. You can never find a consensus. Um, as you said, some of it is fear. Some of it is any idea that management ever suggests is going to hurt us. I sat at the table where they said, you know, you guys are too old-fashioned. You want a wage increase. You know, there's more to a job than just the wages, Matt. Um, okay, we listen, but we always think whatever they're telling us is going to help them and hurt us. So there is some trepidation. Yeah, I I understand that, of course. And I also understand that each uh, particular trade um, has its own challenges and its own fights that need to be fought. But, you know, I want to return to this international question because I do think it's important. Labor unions, in my opinion, um, look, and I don't want to I don't want to get too deep into, you know, the, the, the communist uh, ideology and history of labor unions necessarily. But there is an internationalist historical tradition within organized labor generally. And we could take it back to 19th century Europe and the post-1848 period. And just as you mentioned, all of that influence with the immigrants that came to the U.S. who really established what we know of as the labor movement in the U.S. Internationalism is a fundamental part of this idea of an international working class. And when the unions don't really uh, take a position, and in many ways, take the wrong position on the murder of union organizers in Colombia throughout Latin America, when they don't take a confrontational position on issues of war and all of the rest of that. There are a lot of people around the world, and even in this country, myself included, who then question, well, what exactly is the value of these labor unions in general? And at that point, you then say, well, then we absolutely have to have insurgencies in these unions. So on the one hand, you can see the the, the, the precarious position of labor leadership. On the other hand, the abdication of real militancy from the leadership almost necessitates an insurgency. That is absolutely true. Uh, in our shop steward school um, at our local, which I taught, we would mention the, the first international, yeah, uh, I course. believe, 1840s. I gave a history of unionism. I mentioned Karl Marx, people in Orange County. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were absolutely riveted by what happened. I said, you know, labor unions rose out of a leftist movement. Yep. Okay, Largely, the leftist movement brought here by the Europeans. Exactly, yeah. And I said, we never had an intellectual kind of tradition of left-wing sporadic at best. They brought it with them, fair enough. Okay, one thing um, 
it, it, that that's going on now is among the port workers, and it's it's I don't know if it's growing in intensity, but it was brought up by saying, look, the longshoremen, you know, it, they were the ones that thought of this. They said, what if we refuse to to load the ships that are being sent to your ports, and you guys refuse to unload? All of these ports, every they only have a fixed number of ports. Let's try to do that, and and that's been. That's been talked about for 20 years. It's been done here and there. But you know how it's hard to get people in the same union local to agree. Yeah. It's really hard to get people, you know, different continents to agree. But there was a there was a there's a history of that. I mean, the 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 workers strike all over the West Coast in I what was it 1919, 1920, uh, you know, I mean, that's one of the watershed moments of organized labor in the United States and that sort of militancy. I mean, we even saw it uh recently uh in Long Beach when they briefly shut down the port of San Pedro. Uh we've seen it in I think Oakland as well uh, around Occupy was uh, was involved with that and some other issues solidarity with uh, Palestine uh, a few other issues here and there sporadically now in in trying to build something like that on a larger level and in a more coherent way that requires militancy both on the ground in terms of you know quote unquote in the streets from outside the union but really it requires militancy within that union and in order to have that and I mean I don't mean to you know serve on the subject, but you have to have political education within the unions, within that workforce. Without that, the only thing they're going to know is we want better wages and better benefits for ourselves. That is absolutely true. If I can share an anecdote with you very quickly, 1988, um, I was first elected. I had some people from Stockton, California, ask if they could come down and speak to our membership, ask them what about. They said we're asking people to donate to our strike fund. Uh, we think we're going to go to the mat with the company uh, next time we negotiate. Um, said, yeah, sure, okay. Um, they said, after your meeting, we you can introduce us and, and we can do our thing. So uh, it was uh, two men and a, and a woman, um, two maintenance men and a production worker. Uh, so I introduced them. I said, afterward, hey, they're going to ask. They're going to try to raise some money here. So they spoke. They sounded like uh, the most anti-company, anti-capitalist group of people. They were talking like 1920s. Unions, okay, and it frightened our member. The people are thinking, "Wow, these guys, man, they must really hate capitalism." Okay, and they're all done. Uh, the woman said, "Could we ask something else? Uh, nothing to do with unions." Said, okay, what? She said, "We're going to ask people if they would donate to the Oliver North Defense Fund." <laughs> yeah. And I said, "Really?" Yeah. She said, "I said, you know what? No, you want to talk to people freely after we adjourn, but, but I said, why would you do that?" And she said, because we hate communism. Oh, and my that was her God. Words. And, and, and I thought, oh, my God. Uh, but that's what I'm talking about yeah. is all of the contradictions, the internal contradictions that working people wanting to be management people, wanting their kids to be part of their ruling class. Um, there are some tough people. And, Eric, there, there are some people who were so tough during our strike that they looked at me as being a punk for the strike and people that looked at me as being um, – you know, Eldridge Cleaver, just, yeah. just how can you be so radical? The hard part was to harness that, to work together. But what you say about education is totally correct. Yeah, you know, I and I think that the the political education actually has to take uh, a, a number of directions. On the one hand, you have to have a political, let's call it ideological education or, you know, propagandistic education, understanding the history of the labor movement, the value of the labor movement, what it can do. On the other hand, I think that uh, most uh, working people in general are mostly in the dark, if not completely ignorant about where their union dues and where their money is actually going. For instance, I would be willing to bet, without looking at you know the poll numbers or whatever, I would be willing to bet that a only a tiny fraction of working people who pay into their pension funds actually know where the money of those pension funds is being invested. And if they knew that those pension funds are being invested by these hedge fund operators into all kinds of nefarious investments all over the world that are actually working against the interests of working people, if they knew that that, they would be clamoring to pull their money out of there to force those pension funds to rethink that strategy. That's also an example of the kind of political ed- education that has to happen. I completely agree with you. Um, uh, I look back, one of, the, one of the kind of sick jokes that we used to tell at the e-board, we just, it was a joke, but we used to say, what if the membership were to have a secret ballot? 
700 people and vote whether to remain union members or not. And we always wondered, we thought there was a good chance that people would vote out the union, thinking, one, that the union only helps bad workers. They only get visible when they help bad workers, and everybody thinks of themselves as being a good worker. And two, they look at the raises we've gotten and said it hasn't been much. What have they done for me? And they think they'll get a fair shake from the company without having to pay that $50 a month in union dues. And, and seriously, we thought that people, a lot of people like to think of themselves as loners. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't need a union. Um, that's why the right to work, I think, has worked by people. Um, we have a fetish with liberty here in an odd way, kind of a work way. Um, when you tell people, let's work you know, internationally, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more and brag about its leftist roots. But that alienates a lot of people, and I think it does because of lack of education about the history of unions. It's a lack of education about about unions, and it's also a commentary on the generally uh, conservative right wing tendency of the United States. But that be that as it may, it wasn't that much different in the 1920s and early 1930s. It was the material conditions, to use the you know Marxist terminology, it was the material conditions that drove radicalism in the labor movement that infused it in many ways. I mean, yes, there was a communist streak through the labor union long before that, but it was in the 1930s that that really blossomed into its you know watershed moment. And I'm not saying that we're in the 1930s type uh, depression right now, but we're in one of the worst economic declines that we've seen since that time period. And I do think that there is a potential to re-infuse the labor movement with radicalism. It's very hard to radicalize people when things are going well, but when things aren't going well, that is the job of the organizer and of the labor militant. That's completely true. Also, just to look at how far to the right we've, 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 we've shifted they passed OSHA in 1970 under Nixon. You imagine the chance of passing OSHA now? Yeah, right, exactly. Far right. Look at the Democrats. They would have been called Rockefeller Republicans in 1970. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking the right to have a federal agency come into your plant any time, 24 hours, yeah, they would never pass that. And, and I'm shocked at, at, at just how far right we've come. I don't know if we can re- I completely agree with you about crisis yields improvement. And I don't know if we're at the point, um, uh, but like I say, the young, the women, the minorities in the future. Uh, someone said, one of our union guys said, in the future, the labor union will be brown skin speaking Spanish. And that's a fact. One thing they have in common is that sense of solidarity, being, being right, a minority in this country, and that will drive them. Well, and it will hopefully at least transform some of the more reactionary unions. And as I mentioned, I was in UFT, a very reactionary union uh, in terms of its history, um, very hostile to minorities, to the African-American community in New York City, to immigrants in general. And I can just tell you just one brief little anecdote here. And I I do want to talk briefly before we go about your book. But um, in 2009, uh, I was at a delegate assembly meeting when we had uh, an organizer from um, the uh, opposition, I guess now it's the opposition in Honduras, come to us to tell us about the coup that had just happened, the overthrow of the Zelaya government by these right-wing fascist military guys that were backed by Hillary Clinton and her friends and, of course, the Obama administration for whom she was the Secretary of State. She got up, told us about it, wanted to put a resolution on the table, on the floor, in front of the union, and it was... I mean, it ultimately, I believe it uh, was tabled, and I don't know that a, a vote was ever really taken, a vote of solidarity with them, but you should have seen the outcry from these right-wing, uh, white, male, over 50 males who were basically talking about how we don't want, you know, Chavez-style communists in Latin America to tell us uh, what we right. should think about what the U.S. does. Right. You know, uh, and I, I was, I found that to be 
utterly shocking and to know and I was working in in Harlem at the time in in Spanish Harlem and to know that there were a lot of these people who were making that point in our delegate assembly who were then the next morning going to go into their classrooms and teach predominantly African American and Latino students about history, about science, about math, about whatever, English to know that really disheartened me about what uh, educators as far as the union do my union broke away from the, uh, we were the AF, the AWPPW was formed in 1964, way before I got there, but it was a breakaway union. Uh, the old union was called, I think, the UPIU, United Papers Industrial Union or something. Anyway, they were not responsive. They were not wildly democratic. Um, uh, whatever the beef they had, they broke away and formed their own union. They got kicked out of the AFL-CIO instantly for doing that. Um, but they have been, their nickname, the, the name of the paper was The Rebel. Um, it's one man, one vote. You can make a phone call and talk to the president of the International. Uh, I doubt if a teacher can call and, and talk to Randy Weingarten. Um, yeah. But it's really wide open. And, and yet, and yet, uh, the headquarters are in Portland, Oregon, a, a, a very cool city. And yet, historically, unions, even ours, don't have a good record on the environment and yeah. don't really have a good for one thing they want jobs they want a cement workers union wants to cement the whole world yeah exactly um, and and when people say that unions should be better about the environment they say well, you know what there's all kinds of groups unions are largely economic and uh, yes it'd be great if they were more civil rights oriented um uh even the famous knights of labor um uh nobody was really uh pro-African-American, the famous 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, the Knights of Labor was in favor of it because, for one reason, they thought the Chinese were going to settle for, you know, coolie wages yep. and ruin the economy. And, and um, here in Southern California, uh, people are very upset with... with you know, Mexicans coming across the border, good hard workers willing to work for less. But at the same time, you have to also remember the historical connections between these movements. For instance, let's not forget, as uh, my friend uh, uh, Professor Tony Montero has noted in an interview with me a couple of months back uh, when I spoke to him, where was Martin Luther King shot? He wasn't shot at the Montgomery bus boycott. He wasn't shot on a civil rights march. He was shot leading a solidarity organization with striking trash workers in, Me- in, 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 yes, in Memphis. Yes, okay, you have a, a history of African American working people who, on the one hand, were shut out by a lot of the racist elements within the labor unions. At the same time, have been some of the most militant as well. I mean, you could think of the the, the night porters and all of that. I mean, I want to get into all the history of it, but there's a, a long historical tradition of that as well. And a lot of these unions have been unwilling to face up to the fundamental reality that working class solidarity requires uh, uh, inter-ethnic, interracial solidarity. It requires solidarity with immigrant workers. It requires not seeing immigrants as attacking your own wages, but seeing immigrants as exploited workers. That's totally correct. Absolutely correct. Here's a piece of irony. Okay, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, founded 1912, very much aligned with the Republican agenda, pretty much down the road, okay? They haven't come out formally as a group for pro-life, pro-choice, whatever. But the Chamber of Commerce goes so far to the left in the sense of even outflanking the radical wing of the Democratic Party and wanting limitless and open immigration. Why they want low wages to give more profits to business. The chamber is totally in favor of changing all the immigration laws and loosening them up. And they're not doing it for reasons of fair shake for the underdog. I mean, that's that's true. And again, look, when you're involved in this uh, labor struggle, these are the contradictions that have to be addressed and have to be reconciled because on the one hand, you want to protect the living wages, the, the the standard of living and so forth of working people. On the other hand, you have to recognize where your allies and where your enemies are. Any political education requires that people understand the concept of class consciousness. And if the working people, the working class sees more in common with the capitalist class than it does with the exploited labor and immigrant class, then they will never survive. That's absolutely true, and that's the only thing that disheartens me. 
I have a lot of optimism. Um, I always found uh, that I could convince people one-on-one, small groups, bring them over, uh, you know, kind of use the Socratic method, uh, and, and they listen. I'm not saying that when they walk away five minutes later, they're back to where they were, but, but I really think that people are open to that. But like I told you, I'm a little bit concerned by the fact that no one wants to be considered part of the working class. When you mention working class, they think it's temporary. Uh, they're all kind of budding entrepreneurs. They want their sons and daughters. Uh, uh, I thought, okay, that kind of works against us. That wasn't the case, I don't think, with the immigrants in this country in the 20s and 30s. Um, there was a sense of solidarity for lots of reasons. You still see it in some of the unions, as I mentioned. Longshoremen, uh, the few that I knew, amazing guys. That was our sister union. They sponsored us in 64. Um, they, they really liked what we were doing. Um, during our strike of 83, they, I didn't know this, but the longshoremen held 100 jobs, 100 jobs per day for strikers, and they would go ahead and let them work there. Um, don't know if that's still true, but uh, they were great guys. We got to know them, and uh, they didn't take any guff, but they were opposed to having minorities, as tough as they were. They, they, they have a terrible record as far as it went, but they broke through, and now it's, it's hugely minority. And also, there was a time in the um, longshoremen when they had so much power that if you were a longshoreman you retired, you could hand your card to your son, mm-hmm. and he would get the job. They didn't have to hire him. But then there were longshoremen who didn't have sons. They had daughters. And that's how women got hired, is they handed the card to the daughters, and daughters began working on the ports. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we're we're about out of time, but before we go, I want to just give you a chance. Tell us a little bit about your most recent book. It's never been easy. Essays on modern labor. Really fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, how the book is structured and uh, what people really might find interesting about it. Again, people should pick it up on Amazon and wherever they can. Tell us a little bit about the book. This book is actually Night Shift, 270 Factory Stories. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You're okay. right. no, I'm looking no, at the no. wrong thing on my paper. Yes. No, no. Sorry about um, that. That's uh, what the, I meant. The first Night book Shift. Yes. was like 65 essays, the first edition, and there was a second edition with about uh, maybe 17 new ones. Um, Night Shift is the more interesting one, I would have to say. Um, it is uh, 360 pages long. It is uh, 270 actual stories that occurred to the uh, that I saw in the mail. It's not a memoir. It accounts a lot of inside union stuff. Um, a lot of it's been described uh, as, as sad, as funny, as informative, as weird, as many things. Um, people don't understand factory workers. I think they have a perception that everybody is like an Archie Bunker, which is not the case. Um, um, but a lot of insight into just uh, working stuff uh, with 270 of them. They're not long. There's nothing that's real long. A lot of look at the bargaining process. Uh, I was... Uh, I was a chief negotiator at that union for several years, and I think I sat in on seven, six or seven bargains, uh, a strike. But anyway, just sort of everything, using Neil Woody Allen, everything you, you ever wanted to know about unions that we're afraid to ask. Yeah. Um, fast read, very fast read, and uh, it's been selling pretty decent. Yeah, that I... I actually I knew all of that. I was looking at the wrong part of my paper. But anyway, um, what I find really interesting about it, and it, it's it's bizarre to me that um, you know the the trajectory of my own working life. I was actually a UAW United Auto Workers uh, uh, member when I was really, really? Yeah, I, I was it's even though I well. yeah because uh, UAW is not actually exclusively auto workers anymore. They actually include a lot of museum workers and. Uh, I was working they at do. the Museum they have, of no, they have computer programmers. Yes, exactly. I was uh, I was working at the Museum of Modern Art and we were United Auto Workers and then uh, <laughs> I moved from there and became a teacher and was UFT and so I've had a little bit of ex- a little bit of a taste of uh, labor unions which to a large extent people of my generation for the most part don't have and I think that that's really one of the things I find most interesting about the book is giving people who maybe have never even had a taste of what uh, labor unions are actually like, uh, giving them a taste about uh, factory life, about union life, and uh, about what unions can really do. I think that that's important. I, I feel the same way. Um, it kind of ends on a, on a sad note, uh, is that those, those plants that had really good wages, I say really good, I mean decent, where you could live on one, okay, um, and, and very good benefits that we negotiated and fought for, that, that whole concept of um, kind of a symbiotic relationship, yeah, you paid us a living wage, and we made products that you could make money off of, and that was good. 
that 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 is is really hard to find nowadays. Few and far between. Not only with the auto business, but look at manufacturing across the board. You hear that they're trying to attract it, uh, revitalize it, and maybe they are. Um, but uh, those big jobs, those great jobs, I think, are probably Robert Reich, the the Secretary of Labor under Clinton. I did an interview for Counterpunch. Great guy. He said those jobs are gone. Those jobs are probably gone. And and here they have to go ahead and maybe try to organize retail workers, uh, fast food workers, which I love seeing if they're doing that. But the idea of having um, working in a plant where you can make forty five, fifty grand a year, you know, which you can live on, um, he says those are few and far between, and um, they're going to be they're going to be done in foreign countries. Yes, unfortunately, true. Um, well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Although I was, I was, I was grasping for a way to end on a positive note, but um, I, 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 I do think, I do think it's important. I think we talked about a lot of uh, important things that uh, the labor movement needs to be thinking about, needs to be discussing. Um, again, I want to uh, urge people to check out the book. Uh, I'll get it right this time: Night Shift, two hundred and seventy factory stories, and also the earlier book. It's never been easy. Essays on modern labor. Um, I've been. Checking Chatting with Dave Macaray. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. My pleasure, Eric.